Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for June 2nd, 2017. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is your source each Friday for commentary and insights from practitioners, jurists, and academics on all manner of appellate law developments. This week's show regards two high court cases, one personal jurisdiction case rendered from the U.S. Supreme Court and a taxation matter argued before California's seven supreme jurists. Adam Hoffman of Hanson Bridget will visit first to discuss the state matter, a suit involving election law and taxation, with the unusual quirk of a city fighting against a tax measure that would have netted its coffers some additional revenue. The case California Cannabis Coalition versus the City of Upland asks whether a California constitutional provision meant to protect residents from new taxes applies when those new taxes would be created not by local government, but by the residents themselves through a voter initiative. Mr. Hoffman explains the overlapping issues at play here in a case that will determine the the power and reach of local initiatives that stand to levy new taxes. Then we'll hear from Corey Andrews of the Washington Legal Foundation on the U.S. Supreme Court case BNSF Railway v. Tyrell, which again emphasizes the strict modern approach to general personal jurisdiction that the Supreme Court has squarely endorsed of late. Mr. Andrews explains why the ruling in which railway workers sued under a federal law meant to provide such employees adequate remedies is a logical and necessary development of the general personal jurisdiction doctrine. Before we get to my guest, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast. Find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further preamble, then let's hear from my first guest, Mr. Adam Hoffman, Pants and Bridget. Very happy to welcome to the podcast now Mr. Adam Hoffman, partner at Hanson Bridget, where he represents both public and private clients as a wealth of experience dealing with uh, matters such as the one we'll speak about in a moment involving you know, cities and counties and different measures involving public finance, revenue, land use, election law, and the like. Mr. Hoffman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So now we're talking about a case just argued before the, the California Supreme Court this week involving um, the interpretation of a particular measure, a voter initiative, whether or not uh, it should be deemed a tax or and whether or not upon it should bear a particular provision of the, the California Constitution. So um, that all might sound a little bit abstruse here, but we'll get more into the facts and it'll start to become clear. So the, the overarching law here is a, a California constitutional provision and that itself was created by voter initiative, Prop 218, I believe, in 1996. Um, that created the uh, California Constitution, Article 13C, Section 2, pertaining to localities and ways in which a new taxes can be enacted. So um, walk me through that particular constitutional provision. Sure. So uh, Prop 218 came about uh, as a result of local government and state government um, establishing various uh, charges, assessments, fees, um, as what was perceived an end run around the taxing limitations that had been established back in the 1970s under Prop 13. Um, as you know, Prop 13 set a cap on uh, property taxes in the state, um, which had the effect of depriving local governments of of what had been a uh, you know a very common and reliable source of revenue. So uh, local government turned around and tried to come up with creative ways of filling that revenue hole, um, much to the chagrin of uh, anti-tax uh, crusaders like the Howard Jarvis organization. Um, so they enacted Prop 218 in effect to try and close those perceived loopholes. Um, and as you say, it, it, it kind of came in two parts. It, it enacted Articles 13C and 13D to the California Constitution. Uh, Article 13D, which is not what we're talking about here in this case, uh, governs assessments and fees. Uh, on on real property, 
and, and real property ownership. Article 13C uh, was the quote-unquote right to vote on taxes part of it, which established that um, any tax that was imposed by government had to be uh, approved by by the appropriate electorate. And under Article 13C, there's two kinds of taxes. There's general taxes and special taxes. The fundamental difference being that special taxes are intended to generate revenue for a specific purpose, whereas general taxes generate revenue that just goes into the uh, municipality's general fund. And um, for general taxes, uh, you need a 50% voter approval. For special taxes, you need a two-thirds voter approval. And so the last kind of oddity, and it turns out this is where the rubber kind of met the road in this case we're talking about today, is that um, under Article 13C, uh, a, a local government can't impose a general tax um, until it's approved by the voters at a um, regularly scheduled election. So you can't set a special election um, in order to approve a general tax. And we talk about general elections. Would those be like the presidential midterm elections? And exactly right. It's it's a it's a it's an election that comes up by virtue of the fact that there's an election to be held, not because one gets set specially for a specific purpose. So we'll talk more about that constitutional provision cast a pretty long shadow over this case. But another uh, law that matters is a, a section of the election code, um, which deals with ways in which uh, folks can get local voter initiatives onto to ballots more quickly and um, be voted on in special elections. Um, what are the, the provisions of that uh, election code section? Right. So you've got the um, elections code section uh, 9214, which was really at the heart of um, – this case that we're talking about, um, and and what it basically allows is that if the if if a voter uh, or excuse me if a group of citizens go out and generate um, signatures supporting the placement of a ballot initiative on a special election, fifteen um, percent of the local electorate uh, uh, signs uh, the petition to to have the initiative uh, set. Um, what effectively happens then is. You take your signatures to City Hall, and the City Council has to either um, adopt the the new law that's proposed under the initiative without alteration, so they can just rubber stamp it and say, yes, this is now the law under their legislative authority, um, or they can set it for a special election, um, or they can uh, request a, a, a kind of report that uh, city staff generate about the impacts, and there's a whole bunch of different kinds of impacts that can be studied. But but in short, they want to find out what, what is going to be the effect of the proposed law. They order this report to be generated. And then after receiving the report, they can again either adopt the law as, as written or set a special election. And those are really the only three options that the statute permits, provided that the um, the signatures, uh, the signature requirements have been met. Just out of curiosity, the the voter initiatives that most people hear about do occur on those regular elections. There'll be a whole bunch in November's around the presidential and midterm elections. What what kind of things come up for special elections like this? Uh, you know, really anything uh, can come up this way. Um, uh, you know, it depends on your view. I guess the city feels that this <laughs> this this particular uh, possible tax uh, cannot, but. Um, it, there, I, I'm not aware um, of, of any specific limitations. I haven't studied the question, but you can really come up with just about anything. And I think the idea is generally you want to change the law in a timely way um, and not have to wait. You know, if you think about a general election, 
um, you know, right now we might be waiting for November 2018, um, which is a long time to wait if you've got something you want to do right now. Let's get into the particular voter initiative at issue in this case. Obviously, based on the caption, we know this subject matter here relates to marijuana. And in particular, the voter initiative was a proposed repeal of Upland's ban on medical marijuana dispensaries. Um, but it also included some other provisions that would relate to the implementation and the regulation of those businesses, one of which a, a licensing fee um, sort of gave Upland what it, what it thought was the ground to stand on to, to challenge the implementation of this voter initiative via a special election. Can you tell me why um, that, based on the constitutional provision we spoke about, why in, in Upland's view do you think that uh, that licensing fee caused a potential conflict with the, the Constitution here? Well, it's, it's an interesting problem because, you know, they, as I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the options that a city has when, when uh, signatures are, are submitted in support of an initiative is to, is to order a report, right? Um, and so the city ordered a report in this instance, and one of the things that they learned uh, was that, at least according to city staff and the, and the um, consultants that city staff works with, uh, they learned that the uh, licensing fee that is that was proposed in the initiative, $75,000 per year per license, was great deal larger than the anticipated costs of the regulations called for in the initiative. So uh, let me take a step back and, and explain that. Under, under Proposition 26, which was enacted in 2010 um, and amended Article 13, uh, C section one in particular um, was the first time that the constitution provided a definition of the word tax. It's something that I think for, for lay people and, and, and even you know, lawyers who don't work in this area, the idea that nobody knows what a tax is, is might seem a little silly, but the truth of the matter is we've had like 30 years of litigation about what is and isn't the tax. So uh, proposition 26 amended, Article 13, section, uh, excuse me, Article 13C, Section 1, to define tax. And it basically defines a tax as any government-imposed charge or levy uh, except for seven enumerated exceptions. All right. One of the important um, exceptions is for regulatory fees. But regulatory, a, a, a charge can only qualify under Prop 26 as a regulatory fee, um, if it if it is designed to cover the cost of the regulatory program that it's being used for, okay. So this spurs the city to figure out well what is the cost of the regulatory program under the initiative. You know we're going to establish that um, there can be uh, cannabis dispensaries in the city. It sets up all kinds of regulatory requirements, um, which is not uncommon. I mean, these businesses are are, are complex and, and create a lot of um, sort of un, unusual uh, problems for local governments. And I, and I don't mean in and of the, the the sense of having you know cannabis being sold in, in the city, but there's public safety concerns, there's water concerns, there's electricity concerns, there's a, a lot of unusual um, uh, problems that attend these businesses, and so. You know, it sets up a pretty complex regulatory scheme and licensing scheme. And then the idea is under Prop 26, you can charge uh, for the cost, basically to recover the, the cost of that regulatory scheme. But the city says, 
No, actually, the the cost of this regulatory scheme is only like ten to fourteen thousand dollars per year per license, of which there are only going to be three. The initiative would impose a seventy-five thousand uh, dollar licensing fee. So you know, clearly, like whatever that is, six times the the actual cost. And so that was the problem from the city's perspective. They're looking at this and saying, well, you know, this is this exceeds the regulatory cost. Under Prop 26, it's a tax. Therefore, under you know Prop 218, um, it has to be approved by the voters at a general. Oh, and forgive me, taking a step back, it's not just a tax; it's a general tax because the excess revenues, the revenue uh, that uh, exceeds the cost of the regulatory program, would go into the city's general fund, and so it's a general tax. It requires 50% voter approval, and it has to be approved at a. Um, a regularly scheduled general election. It's a little bit interesting, the, the dynamics there, to, to think about them. Sort of ostensibly the reasoning that the city is, is posing seems to be looking out a bit for those future potential uh, dispensary owners paying this fairly onerous um, regulation fee that, in fact, acts more like a, a tax. But the reason they're fighting this case is because they, they don't want, I assume, right, the, uh, this initiative to pass and to have that uh, ban on dispensaries repealed. Well, it's, you know, that's a, it's a really good question. And, and I, I have to be frank, I don't know the answer. I, I don't know anybody um, with the city of Upland. I haven't spoken to anybody that, you know, that, that can kind of speak to the local politics. I kind of suspect you're right. Um, it, it certainly was the case at, at some point in time, the city enacted a ban on dispensaries, which is, you know, permissible under California law. There are actually lots of cities in the state that, that have done that. Um, and that reflected the politics of the time, at least. Um, and may still reflect the politics or at least reflects the city council's view of the politics as they exist uh, today or, or, or when this was being proposed. So it's very possible that that was a concern. The flip side of that, though, is I think, you know, cities in general are, are pretty open to, you know, to getting revenue. Um, for the most part, they don't have enough. And um, it's sort of unusual for them to refuse a supply of revenue. And so here, it, it, it could be that political question uh, surrounding cannabis and, and cannabis dispensaries. Um, but I also, I, I, giving the city the benefit of the doubt, as I as I'm sort of want to do, um, there is a problem. It, it's kind of a waste of city resources and, and time and staff energy to put on a ballot initiative, which is an expensive process, um, if you sort of know that when it's done, it's, it's going to be challenged as illegal. And so I think there's a, a legitimate concern putting aside the politics to say, look, we don't want to go to this trouble when we can see on the face of this thing that it's against the law. Um, and so I, I don't know what the dominant consideration was, but I, I, I'm not unsympathetic to that view. We'll get into a bit of the procedure here. The, the trial court did side with the city, but on appeal, the, the fourth appellate district sided with the California Cannabis Coalition. And um, as we've uh, hinted at here, there are kind of two discrete questions. One, just simply whether or not that $75,000 regulatory charge is a fee or a tax. Uh, obviously, if it's the latter, then you kind of get into the question of whether or not that tax-related provision of the Constitution applies to it and requires there be a general election to, uh, to sanction it. Um, the appellate district didn't really deal with the first one, the first question, whether it's a tax or a fee, but, but decided, well, even if it, it is a tax, we'll just assume that it is, it, 
the constitutional provision does not apply to it because of the, the particular way it, it's being or would potentially be uh, implemented. What uh, What is the reasoning there? So it's, what, it, what it boils down to is the initial phrase of Article 13C, Section 2, and as it turns out under Prop 26, Section 1E as well, which begins the definition of a tax in terms of government imposing the tax. You know, it uses the verb impose. And um, here, the, the issue was that the government, the city council, was not the one that sort of came up with this idea, right? They didn't want to set a tax and then go seek voter approval for it. The whole idea of the charge was generated by the citizenry. And, and was put to a vote by them without the city's, you know, kind of imprimatur, and as we were discussing, possibly <laughs> against the city's wishes. Um, so, and, you know, for, for that, it's, it's a really interesting issue, actually, because if you think about these constitutional amendments and these initiatives and, and sort of the genesis and history there, the, the court's analysis is not... Uh, I think it's consistent with that history. You know, you start in in nineteen in the nineteen seventies with with Prop thirteen, and the concern there was that you know people were living in their homes, had been living in their homes for years or decades, and were suddenly finding themselves because of the rapidly rising value of their homes, um, they were getting taxed out basically. So you know you have a person. I mean, the classic example was like the retiree couple who've been living in their nice home for however many years. And now all of a sudden, because nothing that they've done, but because, you know, the real estate market has gone up and their local government is reassessing their property, every opportunity they can, um, you know, uh, 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 grandma and grandpa wake up one day and realize they can't make their tax bill anymore and they have to move. And so that was sort of the, at least nominal uh, impetus for prop 13. And so what you see then uh, you know, roughly 20 years later with Prop 218 is a similar problem where you had governments basically finding a way to, to tax people, to, to uh, impose fees on them and charges by virtue of them doing nothing other than just owning property, you know, continuing to live in their homes. And so that was really, I think, you know, in the view of, again, the Howard Jarvis folks and, and others, inconsistent with the goal of Prop 13. Um, and so... You know, as, as you fast forward, you, you, you think about this history and the, and the purposes here was always about this kind of, you know, government action to, in effect, financially penalize people who were doing nothing, you know, kind of uh, optional to incur those new fees and sort of had no control over it. So if you look at Prop 218, it's, it's literally entitled the Right to Vote on Taxes uh, Initiative or Act. Um, all of which was this idea that government was taxing people kind of without their consent. Now, you know, we can get into a long philosophical debate about that in a democratic society, but that was the principle. And so if you, if you, if you think of that as the guiding principle and what the folks in, in Upland were trying to do, you know, this is not the government imposing uh, a tax on people. It's people asking to be taxed. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny thing, but 
I'm still, you know, again, I don't, I don't know sort of what the genesis of this idea was, but the people who proposed this initiative were, were people who planned to be one of the licensees. They wanted to pay this. You know, literally, they were like, take my $75,000. And and there were going to be three whole licenses uh, permitted under this initiative, by the way. So, you know, this was not a situation where grandma and grandpa were going to find themselves suddenly paying $75,000 to continue to own their home. This is a situation where people were opting into a program and asking to have a charge imposed upon them in order to do it. Um, and, and so in, in a fundamental sense, that, that really is different from what the, the people who enacted Prop 13 and Prop 218 and ultimately Prop 26, I think, you know, really envisioned and had in mind. You, you certainly paint well some, some oddities here. It is curious to see the city on this particular side of the V, you know, fighting against attacks that would be imposed on these folks on the other side of the V, entirely willing to pay it to the city. It's just sort of curious. Oh, yeah. And I mean, when you look at the way that the attorneys and the amicus groups um, and, and other folks have lined up on this thing, I don't believe I've ever seen the, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association representing uh, a city right. in, in an appellate matter. You know, usually that, like they're, they're at loggerheads. And so to see that has really been fascinating. Um, and, and, and the League of California Cities, for that matter, came out against this decision. Um, and I think, you know, so, so, I mean, I think it's worth exploring if, if you'll allow me the, the sort of reasons for that, because sure. as much as I kind of see where the court of appeal was going with this thing, I also see why people have kind of a legitimate objection to, to the, to the decision, because, you know, ultimately what, what Prop 218 did was set up an initiative process whereby people would vote on taxes, Right. So the whole purpose of Prop 218 is that people should always be voting on taxes. And, you know, and, and then it set strictures about how that did, how that happened and, and, and when it's sufficient. Um, and the idea that you can sort of avoid one type of initiative by having another type of initiative just seems counterintuitive. Um, and, and it also, I think, is, you know, it, it, it's fair to recognize how readily abused this rule could be. Um, so. you know, because it, it, you know, okay, so, so you get three, uh, city council members who want to set a tax to find a sympathetic individual, um, you know, in the community and say, you, you propose this and that way it's not coming from us and we don't have to worry about Prop 218. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the point that the league made in its briefing, which I, I think is right, um, is that while this case turned on this issue of whether you could hold a special or general election for this particular initiative, the holding of the Court of Appeal applied outward would suggest that any time you have a, a, a charge that's proposed by citizen ballot initiative, that all of Prop 13, or excuse me, Prop 218 strictures would not apply. So assuming that this was upheld, this decision is upheld by the California Supreme Court, you could come back later and enact a, a special tax with only a 50% vote, for example, um, or, or any variety of other things, you know, a, a, a property charge that didn't meet cost proportionality standards on the, under the Constitution. You would, you would sort of open up this, um, these limitations to 
again, what what I you know I think is fairly described as an easily avoided, um, uh, you know, uh, limitation, and so so that's the the one side uh, of the issue and, and why people have been critical of this decision. Um, the other side of it is is a little bit theoretical, um, but still probably right, and that is the nature of the initiative power in California. It's it's described in in the case law as a reservation of legislative power to the people. So, you know, it's not something that the people sort of enacted and granted to themselves. Rather, in you know, this very uh, philosophical view of of democratic sovereignty, the people of California conferred upon the legislature uh, certain legal authorities, but in doing so, reserved some of that same legislative authority to themselves to act through the initiative. But the upshot of that is that when the people act through initiative, they're really not any different from the legislature. Um, you know, they're just a different, it's, it's enacting laws by a different means, but you know, the case law does seem to be pretty clear that the people can't do anything that the legislature can't do. So you're in this sort of weird netherworld. Um, uh, you know, on the one hand, it, I think it is fair to say it's not imposed. The circumstances of this are probably fairly unique. I don't think it would come up often that citizens would just be saying, you know, yes, please tax me. Um, but but at the same time, it, it is an oddball fit and, and, and probably inconsistent with what people imagined when they enacted Prop 218. Yeah, I mean, it's again, it's sort of an odd way to think about it. But as um, I think imagine the League of California Cities and um, Upland would, would argue that just because something isn't imposed, a tax isn't imposed directly by the local government, you know, the local electorate enacting a tax is essentially doing the same thing as acting as a, a local government. They're folks and they're creating a instrument of governance. Uh, so it's essentially the same thing. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And then, you know, there, there's one other concern that I've heard just in the community. I don't, I don't think anybody presented this argument um, in the Supreme Court, um, but it, it, it has, it's a concern that I've heard, you know, and, and you and I've talked before, I'm, I'm sort of an agency partisan, um, but public agencies are concerned that this decision, if it's upheld, will actually spur the Howard Jarvis organizations and others to try and bring a still further amendment to the California Constitution to ratchet down the requirements even uh, more strictly. And, you know, there's there's already so much case law and so much ongoing litigation about how these constitutional provisions work that, you know, adding another one just creates chaos. And so I think there's a sense in which um, you know, this this was just a sort of theoretical bridge too far for them, and they felt like it really just drew fire from folks who are going to say this is wrong and further proof that local government is out there, you know, trying to screw everybody over and overreaching all the time, and, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, just uh, jumping off on that, I think you, you did mention it when you said the, the potential for abuse here exists. Um, part of that is because that election code, you know, calls for a special election when 15% of the electorate wants something to be passed. But it also, I think, as you described, could just allow the city council to go ahead and, and pass that initiative, right, without any vote at all? Correct. Right. Which, which I mean, I think in that instance, if we assume that the initiative includes a tax, something that, you know, doesn't fall outside the definition of tax, I don't think the uh, local government would have that authority. Um, because you know, because Prop 218 requires voter approval, I don't think the, 
I mean, I, I guess as I'm saying that out loud, I can see arguments on both sides about it. But to me, that would be a much clearer end run around the Constitution to say, okay, you can have an initiative proposed by the people, and then the local government can simply rubber stamp that, and you avoid the entire question of a vote altogether. Um, that just seems implausible to me, um, and 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 would get you back. Uh, forgive me for thinking out loud, but that would get you back into this world where it was being pretty clearly quote unquote imposed by the local government because the local government was enacting an ordinance. The local city council or county board of supervisors or whatever it is is enacting an ordinance uh, that that includes a, a, a tax, and so that that to me would be a, a pretty different situation from one where the ballot initiative is truly proposed by citizens it's thereafter approved by citizens and really the the local government either is totally out of the loop or as in this case you know probably act actively opposed to it um where you would say legitimately this is this is not imposed um within within the meaning of the the constitution and that it's certainly an, an easier case, as you describe it, where there's the the city council rubber stamp of a 15 percent uh, supported local initiative, and, and the California Cannabis Coalition acknowledges that, that that's an easier case, but says you know that's that isn't this case, so the right. California Supreme Court doesn't need to to really consider it. But I suppose you know that their side prevails, the appellate court is upheld, and you know, that that possibility exists, and it seems like that kind of argument. That parties make before the California Supreme Court that well that isn't this case you don't really need to worry about the effects of ruling um, even if they those effects could arise uh, it seems like the California Supreme Court does sort of always consider things like that right yeah I mean uh, to to me that's that's not a great argument to make before the California Supreme Court I mean right. if you're in the Court of Appeal perfectly legitimate argument to make and and I don't mean to suggest it's an illegitimate argument I just don't think the Supreme Court is going to find that persuasive um, you know their job is to not to correct error in individual cases, but to determine what the law is and, and in doing so, you know, uh, make policy considerations. Um, and I just, I don't think that the court is going to ignore, you know, very clear and likely consequences of a decision uh, simply because they're not sort of actively presented in this case. Okay, maybe just to wrap up, we've essentially identified them, but I, I guess with such an idiosyncratic case, it's hard exactly to tell what, what is at stake and what the what impacts the you know, the two different outcomes could could create? So, in your view, sort of what uh, what is the city, or what are California cities, and what do advocacy groups like the California Cannabis Coalition stand to either to gain or, or lose depending on the outcome here? Yeah, that's it's a, it's a really complex question, and you've probably picked up on my my kind of ambivalence about this case. Not I, not in the sense that I don't care, but in the sense that I sort of I'm torn about which result I prefer. Ultimately, as I, as I think I've suggested, I think there's a lot of legitimacy to, to what the Court of Appeal did here um, and, and, and good rationale. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm less convinced that the Supreme Court will ultimately adopt that, but we'll just have to wait and see. In terms of, in terms of the, the effects, I mean, I think for, for, for most cities, my expectation is that they are as ambivalent about it as I am. Um, you know, they, they don't have any reason to want to sort of limit their, their citizens' ability to generate more revenue for themselves. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I don't see it as a, as a tragedy for, for local government. Um, I, I think for, for local advocates, it, it's a, it, and, and 
local business, local citizens, and so on, a, a decision upholding the Court of Appeal would actually be fairly positive. Um, I think it would allow people to take government into their own hands um, in a way that you know people have assumed for 20 years that they couldn't. Um, and 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 to me, that's that's maybe not a bad thing. I, you know, th- that 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 reflects my own, I think, political views, though, to to a significant extent. Um, and you know, a, a person who feels that they're already overtaxed by the state and by the local government um, would f- may feel differently about that um, and and not want to make it easier um, for for taxes and, and and other kinds of charges to be enacted. Um, but but in general, I think you know it, it, it sort of encourages, theoretically at least, uh, civic in- engagement. Uh, it, it gives people a, a point to kind of rally around and say, hey, you know, uh, you know, we're 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 X county, and we feel like we're not getting enough funding for our schools. Let's citizens get together and propose a new, you know, parcel tax to help add to the school funding in our county. And they, and they, this gives them freer power to do that. And, you know, and to me, in some ways, that, that seems like a positive. Um, you know, the, the downside certainly is that some people are going to end up getting stuck paying taxes they don't want to pay. Um, I, in general, I'm, I'm, uh, less enamored of the wisdom of <laughs> many people who propose initiatives. And so, you know, you could get into a situation where, for lack of a better term, kind of policy extremists come in and impose a, you know, 30% sales tax because they managed to get 50% of the vote to do it. Seems implausible in, in, in a practical sense. But, you know, you could see some of these really extreme measures that, that a legislative body would kind of take the time to evaluate and, you know, and consider more carefully and that sometimes voters become uh, enamored of ideas and, and vote with their gut rather than with their brains. Um, so I, I do think there's a risk in that, um, and then and then you have policy fallout for for everybody involved. You know, uh, um, you can imagine what would happen to a small city that had a 50% sales tax. You know, um, it probably would not be good for local business for a lot of different people. And then, you know, the the city council is has its hands tied. They can't undo it, and they just have to watch as the the effects uh, roll in. Um, so I do, I, I, you know, there, there is that sort of outside risk, I think. Um, and, and again, there's, there's that fear that I mentioned earlier that, that the folks who spend their time looking for ways to stop taxation in California um, would see this as a, as a rallying cry um, to, to bring a new uh, constitutional amendment and, and make it that much more difficult for local governments. Um, which, which for me, at least, is a bad result. Okay, well, well certainly a, a very interesting case and a lot of a lot of different layers here. Um, Adam Hoffman from Hanson and Bridget, thanks for helping us unpeel all of them. Uh, appreciate uh, your time. Thanks very much. It was fun talking about it. One more time, that was Adam Hoffman. Hanson Bridget LLP, discussing the case before the California Supreme Court, California Cannabis Coalition versus the city of Upland. We'll hear now about a U.S. Supreme Court ruling from this week involving general personal jurisdiction. Here now is Corey Andrews, the Washington Legal Foundation. 
Very happy to be joined now by Mr. Corey Andrews, Senior Litigation Counsel with the Washington Legal Foundation. Mr. Andrews, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you, you wrote an amicus brief in the matter that we're discussing now. It's a U.S. Supreme Court case down this week, BNSF Railway versus Tyrell, uh, a case that originated from the Montana Supreme Court. This is a, another iteration, another chance for the, the court to express its um, thoughts on the modern approach to general personal jurisdiction. And uh, perhaps not surprisingly, it expresses a, you know, its belief that, that uh, the doctrine should be construed fairly narrowly and strictly in accordance with some of its recent precedent. Uh, so we'll get into to all that, but starting maybe with uh, the facts here, who are the plaintiffs involved? I understand there's a couple of them. Um, and how did they end up in, in, in court against BNSF in, in Montana State Court? I understand they were suing under a federal law, the Federal Employees Liability Act, right? What's that act and what does it provide for? Sure. Well, uh, FELA is a, is a federal law that was enacted in 1908 by Congress to uh, really protect and compensate uh, private rail, railroad workers who are injured on the job. Um, it's based upon the federal government's power over interstate commerce under the Commerce Clause. Um, and so before FELA was enacted, there really was no federal remedy for injured uh, railroad workers. It, it, it's somewhat similar to uh, what we think of as workers' compensation, except uh, it does it is a fault-based system, and, and um, the plaintiff has to prove um, that the railroad company is at least partially at fault. So um, unless it's shown that the, that the worker is 100% at fault for their own injuries, um, they're typically entitled to some, some recovery. Uh, so then the plaintiffs here were injured, I understand, not in Montana, but their suit did end up in Montana State Court. Yeah, so there's actually two lawsuits, two separate lawsuits that were both consolidated for purposes of the Montana Supreme Court. Uh, one suit was filed by Robert Nelson. Uh, he's a North Dakota resident uh, who um, sought, sought recovery for a knee injury that he sustained while working for BNSF as a fuel truck driver in Washington State. Um, the, the second suit involved um, a widow uh, of uh, a BNSF employee named Brent Tyrell, um, and she sued BNSF uh, for causing his fatal kidney cancer um, through exposing him to some carcinogenic chemicals uh, while he was working for BNSF. Um, we don't know exactly where he worked for BNSF, but we do know that he never worked for BNSF uh, in Montana. Okay. So I suppose what what is the theory upon which these cases were were brought then in Montana State Court if the, the harm was not caused within the state and neither plaintiff resides in the state? And as I understand it, uh, BNSF is incorporated in Delaware and has its principal place of business in Texas, so they don't have a whole lot of operation in the state. What uh, What is the basis for uh, jurisdiction in the, in the the plaintiffs' minds? Well, the plaintiffs argued uh, that under FELA, uh, they enjoyed uh, personal jurisdiction over BNSF um, anywhere that BNSF uh, was doing business. Um, so they, you know, as, as the listeners will probably, some many will remember, um, there's specific jurisdiction, which is uh, jurisdiction uh, that is tied to the particular facts of the case, 
uh, in the litigation uh, which arises from the conduct that's being sued over um, or the injury sustained. And then there's general all-purpose jurisdiction, which is basically jurisdiction for all matters. Um, and so they, they asserted general jurisdiction uh, over BNSF in Montana. Apart from that, we're left only really to guess um, why um, a, a resident of, of North Dakota and um, a resident of South Dakota, which is what um, Mr. Tyrell's widow is, uh, why they brought suit in um, Montana. Okay, speaking of general personal jurisdiction, it's probably useful to set some precedential context. Uh, most listeners probably are familiar with some of the, the bigger uh, blockbuster cases from the past few years dealing with general personal jurisdiction uh, and construing it fairly strictly. In particular, there's the case of Daimler versus uh, Bauman from a few years ago, which clarified the standard for when states can um, assert general personal, personal jurisdiction over uh, defendants. Um, that rule will bear pretty significantly. On this case, as we'll get more into, but what, what exactly did that case enunciate? So uh, Daimler basically reiterated uh, what what the court had previously said in, in the Goodyear case, um, which was a, another uh, case involving uh, general jurisdiction. And the court set out a very bright line rule that said, uh, for purposes of general jurisdiction, where the suit has no connection to the forum state, meaning that you know, the actions arising to the suit or the conduct or the wrongdoing or the injury are not tied to the state where you're suing, um, that those sorts of suits can be brought in basically one of only two places. Um, the, the corporation's uh, state of incorporation and its principal place of business. And the theory on that was that uh, a corporation um, is at home in those two places and uh, it does not violate due process to sue a company uh, in its own home. That's sort of the the background um, here, but sort of layered on top of that is the FILA um, statute, um, particularly this um, Section 56 in the U.S. Code, uh, Chapter 45, which provides, as you, you touched on the, the doing business um, provision, allowing folks to, to bring these suits under the, the FILA statute in areas or in forums where defendants are, are doing business. What uh, what what exactly is that section providing for, um, and why, why is it important in in this case? So there are two two sentences in Section 56 of FILA that um, the plaintiffs invoked in this case, and that the Montana Supreme Court relied on in its opinion. Uh, the first sentence uh, states that an action may be brought in a district court of the United States in the district of the residence of the defendant, or in which the cause of action arose or in which the defendant shall be doing business at the time of the suit. And in the second sentence, it uh, states that the jurisdiction of the courts of the United States uh, shall be concurrent with that of the courts of the several states. Um, and so as we'll probably elaborate on later, that first sentence um, has been deemed to speak of venue, and the second sentence has been uh, traditionally understood to, to speak to subject matter jurisdiction. Um, but both the plaintiffs and the Montana Supreme Court um, argued that combined those provided for personal jurisdiction um, in this case. 
Sure. Yeah, I wanted to unpack the Montana Supreme Court ruling. So essentially that their ruling, finding that jurisdiction was proper here, is, is based pretty squarely upon that Section 56 as, as a provision allowing for jurisdiction in cases like this? That's right. That's that's uh, That was the primary uh, basis for the Montana Supreme Court's uh, decision. And then alternatively, it also uh, held that under Montana law, under Montana's long-arm statute, um, jurisdiction was proper, again, because uh, that particular provision of Montana law allows for suit um, where the defendant is doing business. And since the defendant is certainly doing business in Montana, um, they felt that it satisfied both federal law and state law. Yeah, so just based on the, the miles of track and the employees that BNSF maintains in, in, in the state that notwithstanding even the, the federal law there, the just general personal jurisdiction laws um, would apply and, and provide jurisdiction here. Now, CERT is granted from um, from the U.S. Supreme Court, and your, your group weighed in with an amicus brief here um, advocating that the the country's high court reversed the Montana Supreme Court. Why, why did this case come to your attention? Why did you feel that it was an important one to weigh in on? Sure. Well, um, my client, the Washington Legal Foundation, we filed a, an amicus brief uh, both at, at the search stage in support of review and on the merits. Um, and so we we felt like this was an important case for a couple of reasons. The first is that there was a, already a split uh, among the high courts of several states on exactly what FILA provides and whether or not it provides or a grant of, of uh, personal jurisdiction. Um, the states of um, Mississippi and West Virginia, for example, had decided um, that FILA doesn't provide for personal jurisdiction. Um, and Montana, uh, with its decision, joined Alabama in uh, interpreting Section 56 as, as including a grant of, of jurisdiction. At the same time, while the cert petition was pending, um, but before uh, it had been granted and uh, and before the the um, the merits merits case had been fully briefed, uh, both the Oregon and Missouri Supreme Courts had also taken up the same issue, and, and each of those courts came out with an opinion um, before this opinion. Uh, siding with Mississippi and West Virginia uh, that FILA does not provide for personal jurisdiction. So you had a kind of uh, disarray among uh, state court jurisdictions, which is always problematic. The the other reason um, that we felt like the case was important um, was that we, you know, we sort of believe that, um, among other things, the due process limitations uh, of personal jurisdiction confer some degree of predictability um, to the legal system and that allows you know defendants to structure their primary conduct with some minimum assurance as to where that conduct will render them liable to suit and, and that kind of predictability of course is extremely valuable to companies and, and businesses and co- corporations uh, as they make their investment decisions and in this this modern economy certainly um, you know, so many companies have a nationwide presence in all 50 states. So if, if the rule that had been announced in Daimler, which 
which they had relied on was going to be abrogated, uh, that seemed to be an important case to be a part of. Okay, then uh, before we get into the U.S. Supreme Court ruling here, which which does reverse the Montana Supreme Court, I wanted to just briefly unpack the the arguments that you you make in in your brief. They seem to sort of proceed in two steps. The first being that you know, they're under cases like Daimler and Goodyear, there aren't enough connections between BNSF and the forum state here, and that um, FILA, the Section fifty six provision, doesn't sort of make a difference. It doesn't change the personal jurisdiction equation um, to allow for jurisdiction. The predominant fact, the thing that matters is the, the connections, and they're not being sufficient connections. And then the, the second step is you say that, that Section 56 couldn't really make that change, even if that was the intent of it, that jurisdiction must comport to notions of you know, fair play and, and justice and, and due process. And so uh, where those don't exist, um, you know, Congress couldn't say, well, jurisdiction is proper. Anyway, do I have both of those fairly well surmised? Well, this, the, the, the the last argument is certainly um, true, we believe, with regard to the state courts. And so, um, you know, there are some statutes in which Congress has um, granted a very broad uh, jur- personal jurisdiction uh, for, for enforcement, such as the Clayton Act, um, the FTC Act for the Federal Trade Commission, uh, and, and the Patent Act. Um, and so, you know, while it's clear that the court makes clear Congress didn't here establish um, broad personal jurisdiction for U.S. federal district courts, um, I guess it's an open question whether it could, and, and that's something Congress could consider doing. But when it comes to state courts, um, we feel very strongly that um, Congress is not uh, able to commandeer state courts. So um, we we cite a uh, concurrence from Justice Frankfurter, uh, which he, you know, we think explains the situation very well. That um, Congress has the full power to provide its own courts for litigating federal rights, um, but the state courts belong to the states, and they are not subject to the control of Congress. Um, and so, because of that. Um, Congress has to take the state courts as it finds them, and that means subject to all the conditions for litigation in state courts that apply for every other litigant who seeks access to the courts. This is really a kind of a federalism argument um, that there's a, a proper sphere. The states themselves are sovereign, and they have sovereign territories, uh, and Congress uh, certainly can pass laws that are supreme to, to state court laws, but it's not able to... to alter or amend the state courts, um, or certainly expand the, the the exercise of state court jurisdiction. It, is, it establishes limits on that jurisdiction under under the Constitution. Um, but uh, we didn't read the statute as being able to alter state court jurisdiction, even if that had been Congress's intention. Okay. Uh, then maybe could you take me through the, the opinion here? It's a fairly a nearly unanimous one. I think it's a seven to one opinion with Justice Gorsuch um, sitting this one out because he wasn't there for the arguments uh, and Justice Ginsburg writing for the majority. Her reasoning seems to map on fairly nearly to the arguments that you presented in your brief, right? That's true. Um, particularly the analysis of Section 56, very similar. Uh, and the analysis of due process under under Daimler, very similar. Um, so just sort of fleshing it out, um, so it, it looks at that first sentence, which talks about um, 
where suit may be brought. And uh, Justice Ginsburg explains Congress generally uses the expression where suit may be brought uh, to indicate federal districts in which venue is proper. And so uh, both Congress and the court have understood the language in the first sentence of Section 56 to pertain to venue. Uh, in contrast, uh, she points out that when Congress wants to provide for the exercise of personal jurisdiction, um, it has been to authorize a service of process. And again, she gives some examples where Congress has done that, including the Clayton Act and the FTC Act. Um, and so she explains that Congress uses that terminology because absent the defendant's consent, um, a basis for service of summons on the defendant is is a prerequisite to the exercise of personal jurisdiction. Um, and so then she turns to the, the second sentence in Section 56 and, and um, it makes clear that that is speaking to when it says uh, jurisdiction of the courts of the United States shall be concurrent with that of the courts of the several states. That's referring to subject matter jurisdiction. So you know, it's a federal law. Congress uh, made clear that states have concurrent jurisdiction to adjudicate the subject matter of that law. And in fact, there's some history here because Congress added that sentence um, specifically after a Connecticut Supreme Court case had held that Congress intended for FILA to be exclusively um, a federal court um, subject matter jurisdiction, that states um, had no ability to entertain uh, suits under FILA. So to clarify, Congress added that sentence, um, and the legislative history made it pretty clear that that's why they added the sentence. And so that sentence also doesn't provide any basis for personal jurisdiction. Um, I think she uh, she addresses the Montana court's alternative basis for personal jurisdiction here, uh, sort of notwithstanding whether or not Section 56 applies, correct? That's right. The other basis was just, hey, Montana Montana law says we can, and so that's that's basically where Daimler says no, you can't. Um, and so you know, the the analysis under Daimler is fairly simple because it's not a suit that arose in Montana, has no connection to Montana, um, and because BNSF is not at home in Montana, uh, it being uh, incorporated in Delaware and having its principal place of business in Texas. Um, the suit can't be brought there. Uh, there's no general no general jurisdiction available. Those are sort of the the legal mechanisms of the the decision here. There's some some policy ones in particular. One you raise in your brief is a you know certainly a, an oft cited one in cases involving jurisdiction. The idea of, of forum shopping being being possible if there's a broad construal of jurisdiction statutes. Um, how, in your opinion, uh, problematic? Would that practice be, say, had the the case gone the other way here? Are plaintiffs, do you think, really looking around for more plaintiff-friendly forums in which to bring suits like this? Well, something's certainly happening. I mean, you, you know, we, we really didn't have a good answer ourselves for why these two suits were brought in Montana. But um, at the time uh, the Supreme Court was considering this, there were actually dozens of FILA cases pending against BNSF alone in Montana state courts, all brought by non-resident plaintiffs alleging no Montana-related injuries um, or acts. Um, and in the case that was pending before the Oregon Supreme Court, um, the plaintiff there was a Washington resident um, who uh, was suing for injuries 
suffered in, in Washington state. Um, and she and her counsel candidly admitted that she chose Oregon, uh, because she wanted to avoid litigating the case in Washington because, um, it allows interrogatories and expert discovery. Um, so she was trying to obtain a different sort of substantive, uh, gain, you know, gain there by suing in Washington. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of empirical research, too, that confirms that form shopping can affect the outcome of a case because the venue in which the case proceeds very often impacts the result. Um, at, the, at the search stage, the Association of American Railroads um, uh, filed a brief in which they they revealed there were at least 170 cases pending in state courts across the country that had, uh, under FILA, that had no connection um, to the form state where the, com- the defendant company wasn't at home, and yet the suit didn't arise from there. And so um, th- there's also often a very uh, local interest in having localized controversies decided at home. And and oftentimes, um, you know, FILA claims are combined with state law claims. And when that happens, you have you know, one state law, one state court interpreting and applying the state law of another state court. Uh, so we think, you know, we think Montana judges and courts should be largely applying Montana law. Um, and, you know, if, if someone was injured in, um, you know, Washington or North Dakota or anywhere else, um, those, those laws are best applied by those courts. Maybe to, to offer some pushback, I think sort of pulled from the plaintiffs um, and respondents' filings here. I think one point is made uh, that cases under FILA and in suits against railroad companies can be a bit unique in that some of the injuries can occur sort of in far-flung locations out on railroad track that's far away from a plaintiff's home and also from a company's place of business such that you know, jurisdiction should be a little bit more flexible. That's what FILA is for. So it isn't really form shopping. It's just, you know, kind of a necessity of the injuries and the suits like this. So here, one of the plaintiffs is, is injured in, in in Washington, but that's far from where both where he lives and where the company is. So you know, bringing suit there might be a bit tricky. Um, do you see any, any merit to arguments like that, that these cases are a bit unique, so jurisdiction needs to be a bit more flexible? Well, I mean, I certainly think that's the the plaintiff's best argument, um, and I thought that was, you know, the strongest point at oral, oral argument was their their attorney did a good job of of pushing that that argument. I mean, I guess a few points. First of all, there's always at least three places where the plaintiffs can bring a suit. One is going to be uh, in Delaware or Texas against BNSF, um, and the other is going to be the state of injury. And I guess the thing to remember about the state of where the injury occurred is that that's a state where the plaintiff works. And so it's not entirely clear why it's, it's convenient to work somewhere, but not to bring a suit there. I guess it's at least no more or less convenient to sue there than it, than it is for them to, to work, work there. Um, and then the other thing is just to remember, you know, this particular case as, as, a, as an example. I mean, how is it convenient to bring suit in a state where you neither live nor work? Why is that um, desirable? Um, so, you know, I didn't hear any good answer to, to that to that question. 
know, having said all that, again, going back to something I said earlier, if Congress uh, wanted to um, provide, in, at least in federal courts, um, uh, more generous personal jurisdiction, um, it, you know, I think that's something that it could consider. Um, at looking at some of these other statutes, uh, that's certainly something it's done in other areas. And so if the injustice is grave enough, I think Congress could provide a remedy. I did want to raise a point made by the lone dissenter here, Justice Sotomayor, who makes sort of a broader doctrinal point about what she sees as the sort of inflexibility of the the modern ju- general personal jurisdiction rule um, as enunciated in cases like Daimler. Um, and the, the majority says here you have basically the, the two places you can sue, the, the state of incorporation and the principal place of business. But in addition to that, you know, in the exceptional case where there are sufficient enough ties between a, a, a third forum state and and the the company, general personal jurisdiction could could be proper in a state like that. But the majority said, you know, that that isn't the case here. The miles to track and the employees aren't aren't enough. And just as Sotomayor essentially was saying that, well, the majority in, in any case sort of could always say that that you know that the exceptional case will never happen. The court could just say, well, yeah, the company has these connections, but those aren't enough. Uh, what do you make of, of her concern there? Um, I think it's a little bit misplaced. I mean, first of all, exceptional cases should be exceptional. And the court said it's an exceptional case. The case that, that cited as an example of that is the Perkins case, um, in which, uh, because of, uh, some sort of war-torn conflict, the company temporarily relocated its headquarters um, to a to a state in the United States, and so in that in that case, its principal place of business actually wasn't what it appeared to be on paper, but it had a sort of de facto principal place of business. And in that case, um, it makes perfect sense to allow suit there. Um, that's really, if anything, it's. Uh, Giving um, full, sort of honoring the the, the bright line rule uh, announced in, in Daimler, um, but these jurisdictional rules, the court has said, uh, uh, you know, need to be bright line rules, um, because uh, if not, then you know, so much litigation will just get bogged down in suing and litigating uh, facts related to jurisdiction, and so um, you know, to conserve judicial resources, um, bright line rules are. are are sort of make perfect sense in this area. Um, and so with a bright line rule comes a narrow exception. And so to me, it makes perfect sense that any exception would be fairly narrow. Just one, one last one here. In your view, how's the best way to interpret this case in terms of whether we're just talking about a, a re-enunciation uh, of the rules, um, the rule as it's been explained in, the, in recent cases, or is there any kind of advancement in the doctrine, any sort of additional doctrinal gloss in, in the general personal jurisdiction context? Well, I think I think it definitely is a, is a very clarifying opinion. Um, you know, after Goodyear and then even after Daimler, there were a lot of um, attorneys and, and judges who basically didn't think that the court meant what it said. And I think the court is making it very clear that it, it means what it said. By the way, all of those opinions, whether it's uh, Goodyear or Daimler or now this one, those are all opinions authored by uh, Justice Ginsburg, um, and she doesn't have a reputation for being, you know, 
hostile to plaintiffs or in bed with defendants or anything like that. But, but I think the, the big takeaway from the case is on page 11 of the slip opinion, uh, which it makes it very clear. This is not, this case, this is not simply a holding limited to Philo or to railroads. And, and uh, Justice Ginsburg says that the, you know, very clearly the 14th Amendment due process constraint described in Daimler applies to all state court assertions of general jurisdiction over non-resident defendants. And that constraint does not vary with the type of claim asserted or the type of business defendant being sued. And so that, to me, um, is sending a message that Daimler really means what it says. Um, it's uh, our holding in this case is, you know, not just uh, dealing with this statute and, and these defendants, but that, that broad rule, uh, you can expect us to uh, enforce that broad rule uh, in a variety of, of uh, scenarios going forward. Okay, well, yeah, that that sounds clear enough. We'll see if there uh, continue to be additional instances where the case will need to to revisit this question. But for now, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Mr. Corey Andrews, the Washington Legal Foundation, thanks very much for being on the podcast to unpack this case for us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. And with that, our program for June 2nd, 2017 is complete. Thanks one more time to both of my guests, Adam Hoffman and Corey Andrews. Thank you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget that CLE credit can be yours. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardow. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.